Hi, I'm Roger Langridge, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Keep listening. with what we had at the time and I and I I'm not a big fan of going back and reworking things you know yeah. a black and white movie or you know redoing Jedi and adding in all these other bits just because we've got CG now and, you know I, I think it should be allowed to, to stand on its merits from the time that it exists in in history yeah. <laughs> basically Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the GBB Podcast, Twitter at the GBB Podcast, and right here in your ears on your phone or wherever you're listening, on your computer. <laughs> Have to add that in every week. Yeah, no, it makes me giggle, so that's good. Makes you giggle. Well, that's what's important. That's what we're, <laughs> that's what we're shooting for here. I know. <laughs> and... I have been uh, a fan of the Muppets, and I know you have been as well, and for many years, and mine stems from my dad was a big fan of the Muppet show, yeah. and he kind of passed that on to me as I grew up, and I, he would always get me to watch different Muppets you know, movies and whatnot, and that's my introduction to it, mm-hmm. and in... I'm in Canada. I guess there was in the U.S. We have a we had a Sesame Street program. Ours was specifically themed for Canada. We had different French puppets and stuff. <laughs> Funny. And I was gonna say like, how do you? What's really they, that different? Well, what they know? would do is it's they just would take. Snowier? Well, they would take. Uh, they would take uh, different scenes and inter put them into the American show. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So there'd but be that a was just French for. Scene. That must have just been for just Quebec though, right? I mean, no, it was it for all of Canada. All of Canada they yeah. did that. Yeah, they did. Okay. It was a puppet that could the whole scene wasn't French. It was a puppet that spoke English and one that spoke French and they would talk to each other. All right. It was kind of funny. But anyway, that's besides the point. I don't know even know why I brought that up. Um but that's where I really fell in love with the with, you know, Muppets and the puppets and Jim Henson's work. And yeah. it it was it's just fascinating what they're able to do, what they were able to do. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm a, I'm again, I mean, from when I was a kid, I remember watching the Muppet show, not from when it was first on because right. that's before me, but like it was still on TV, like in reruns. And I just remember watching it and loving mm-hmm. it. And, um, then the movies, you know, the, the original trilogy of movies that came out. Um, but I remember like just being blown away because when Labyrinth and Dark Crystal came out, I was old enough to really remember and mm-hmm. like kind of get what's going on more than just like a puppet on the screen that I enjoyed watching. And I was just blown away by those movies. Right. Um, and so it sort of cemented like Jim Henson as like God to me. Because right. Just, like he was like, when I realized like this is like one guy who was involved in all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't believe that like, one guy was responsible for like the coolest parts of Sesame Street and the Muppets and Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Right. And, um, I remember when Storyteller was on TV, that show was awesome. And I never got to watch Fraggle Rock because it was on HBO when it first came on. And we mm-hmm. never had that. And then it was on, I, I, I forget, but it moved over to some other pay cable channel. And we never had cable as a kid. So I never right. really got to see Fraggle Rock. But yeah, Jim, when I, when I realized that like this was one guy that was behind all of these right. amazing things that I loved, I was a fan for life. Well, and the, the quality difference is so you can really see it. Like if you just watch a kid's show that has puppets on it and oh, then yeah. watch a show with Jim Henson and the Muppets, yeah. it's just unbelievable. It's not even in the same league. No. Yeah. <laughs> it really is like you might like they're just putting like socks on their hands yeah. and pretending to talk. You know? It's like, no, you're not doing it right. Um. And today, and so I, I say that all, and that sounds, why are you saying this? I guess if you read the description, you would know. But if you just came into this blind, we have a fantastic interview with someone who worked with Jim Henson his entire, his, for his the beginning of his career. Yeah. Uh, it's Tim okay. Rose today. And Tim, 
probably today is most well known as the guy behind Admiral Akbar. Um, mm-hmm. He was the the puppeteer and the you know the 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 actor in the suit when they did the suit um, in both Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens and Episode Eight, which they're filming now. He didn't do the voice. The voice was Eric Bowersfeld, um, who recently just passed away. But uh, Tim, in from the Star Wars universe, was Admiral Akbar. He was Cy Snoodles. Um, he was uh, Salacious Crumb. Uh, but before he sort of got into that, he started his career with Henson and Henson Studios. And he worked on The Great Muppet Caper, Labyrinth, and Dark Crystal. He was one of the Skeksis in Dark Crystal. So that immediately makes him a superstar in my book. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, this guy's awesome. <laughs> and he's got some really great stories to tell. Yeah, he's got he has a lot of really cool, you know, behind the scenes stories. Um, just different just different things. He's you know, it's very interesting. So I think you're gonna like it. <laughs> I hope I so. think you are going you to, are like, gonna it. like it. If you don't if you like Star Wars, you're gonna like this. So pay attention. And who doesn't like Star Wars? I don't know. Justin's people kid. people that don't like fun. Justin's kids. Yes. My kids don't like fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Here you go. Enjoy. Tim, thanks so much for joining the show. Um, It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, And I guess, as is our our way, and as is the way of most interviews, I guess, we're going to go back to a little bit to the beginning. and I understand that you started your professional career um, with Jim Henson. And from what I understand, you actually went straight from from being a street performer almost to working with Jim. Um, and I'm just curious to know how that happened, how you just sort of ended up with them, him um, at the very beginning. Um, well, it took two tries. The, the first try, I found out where his workshops were in New York City, and I came down on the train with my bag puppet booth and because I was such a shy young man I actually put the booth on and walked in the front door in the booth <laughs> had my dragon hand him my resume <laughs> funny enough I had never heard from him again and uh, <laughs> I was then a few years later I was uh, working in New York City I, I was doing um, lighting for off-Broadway and Broadway and that for lighting rental company and a friend of mine told me that they were hiring in their workshops. So I, I went in personally to talk to them and uh, interviewed again, and that time I got the job. You left the dragon at home that time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised yeah. that didn't work. Yeah, I thought that would have been a surefire thing. <laughs> I don't know. The secretary just seemed to laugh and roll her eyes. So, you know. Oh, I bet you if you had handed, the, if the dragon had handed it straight to Jim, it would have worked. Jim probably would have liked it much better. I'm sure. Um, you, you, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, you worked directly with Jim on a few different projects and you, uh, as with any, uh, myth, like he's like a mythical person now to people and there's going to be myths that grow up around. him. so I'm curious to know what was your lasting impression or memory of him? I described the time that I worked with Jim as the days of King Arthur's court where it was always sunny and never rained. <laughs> he, he was, um, it's no myth. He really was that wonderful a person. He, um, I, I describe it as he, um, he collected misfits. He collected people who didn't necessarily fit into um, the mainstream in society. And he gave us a play pen to play in, and we all rewarded him by creating wonderful things that people all over the world wanted to see. Yeah. <laughs> and he, was very much, um, I mean, the company that I worked for in New York City was called Henson Associates, and it was a full profit-sharing company, so that everything you contributed to the company, you got to see the benefits of in your Christmas bonus paycheck every year. Wow. We were, we were all given a portion of things, and um, when they started doing merchandising, we'd quite often be given... Uh, part of his contract with the companies was that they had to give us each one of their toys. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we got all sorts of Christmas presents. So. <laughs> you, um, so a lot of the, the films that you worked on uh, back then with Jim have sort of become, 
I don't want to say the word cult favorites because that means that they, you know, it's just like a subset of people who like them. I mean, they're classics. I mean, you worked on Labyrinth and Dark Crystal and you worked on Great Muppet Caper. Um, we recently had Brian Froud on the show. So we talked quite a bit with him about, you know, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. And we asked him this question, and I'm, but I'm curious to also get your take. Um, a film like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, um, they they seem to be very much a product of their time and, and of his vision. And I'm wondering if you think a film like that, that's almost entirely done with puppetry, um, whether that could be made today and whether it would be successful. Well, certainly with The Dark Crystal, it was, um, it was Jim's dream to make a movie that had no people in it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that in terms of live three-dimensional characters, there's ever been another movie before that or since. <laughs> even. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there have been ones since, but they've been done by computer graphics, not sure. by animatronics and live performance like that was done. Um, because he was so worried or because he cared about it so much that he was putting him so much of himself on the line with the Dark Crystal... We actually ended up getting almost a four-year pre-production, which is also unheard of before or since. <laughs> sure, exactly. But we got the chance to make something, look at it on camera, say, yeah, that's okay, but actually I just got a good idea. Let's make it even better. And um, we, with our work, when you get the chance to have a second or a third go at something, you you can make it better with the number of times you're given to remake it. So, yeah. Yeah, but that's not a very common thing to be able to do. Oh, we're lucky these days if we get uh, three weeks to yeah. <laughs> design, <laughs> build, and bring the set something, yes. Uh, I, mean, process. I mean, as a kid, and even now, but as a kid, I was in love with The Dark Crystal. And I, to this day, I remember just being in awe. I was watching this making of documentary. It must have been on TV at some point. And, I, and it showed... Um, you know, the performers, and I'm sure you were in this, it showed the performers, you know, getting inside the Skeksis and the Gartham. And I was just blown away that like inside the Gartham, they had these little fans to keep them from overheating. And they had a little TV screen so they could see what they were doing. Yeah. How much of an ordeal really was it to get into those costumes? Um, well, the story I'd like to tell about it was uh, we discovered um, the the mental thing of sensory deprivation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you were in one of the Skeksis, if it was, took a long time to reset a scene or something, you were basically completely in the darkness with a little three-inch monitor. But, of course, a three-inch monitor in those days was over a foot long and weighed about 10 pounds. So That's right. <laughs> you had this 10-pound weight hanging about your neck in the darkness. And sometimes when they would call action half the Skeksis would start acting and the other half would just sit there lolling about because our brains had disappeared off into a daydream. <laughs> <laughs> the cameraman would um, sit at his camera even when he wasn't filming and just pan the camera left and right. So it gave us something new to look at. and could, We could see why people were, why it was taking so long, why we were sitting there in the dark for so long. You weren't just uh, staring at the floor. And watch what was going on on the set. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's um. Was it was full body suits is um, not everybody's cup of tea. There's a certain masochistic element to it. Oh, I bet. I mean, was it was it really just total blackout inside there? Like, could you not hear anything? Um. Well, funny enough, those because they were cable controlled, it was easier to hear things. So with. With a lot of the new ones, you can have up to 27 servos inside there with you. So it's like having your head in a budgie cage. And unless you have earpieces in, you do not hear anything at all. Yeah. Huh. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a lack of uh, sensory input quite often. So how did you go from uh, working with Henson to working on Return of the Jedi? I quit the Muppets. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a simple answer. <laughs> no. It, um, <laughs> at the time, I I pride myself in the fact that 
I have been an animatronic designer and performer through my career. And I've only appreciated recently just how unusual that's been, you know, the people who have built this stuff and performed it as well. And I didn't think it was unusual because doing the puppets in my own puppet shows, that's what I had always done was, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, design and build it and then perform it. Um, but when Jim was starting on Fraggle Rock, I wanted to be one of the puppeteers mainly because they got paid a lot more money than the technicians did. Mm -hmm. And when I went and asked Jim to be one of the puppeteers, he said um, that he felt my value to the company was with my animatronic design. And at the time I was really hurt and I thought that um, he was telling me I wasn't a good enough puppeteer. Mm -hmm. And it was only with maturity and age I realized that actually it was a lot easier to find somebody to puppeteer this stuff than it was somebody to design this stuff because right. In the 80s, the times you're talking about, we were making it up as we went along. There, there were no courses. There were no books. There was sure, you <laughs> there were making there, the rules. There was nothing. Yeah, we would pick up the raw materials and go, how can we make this into something? And yeah. um, <laughs> anything we could come up with, we could use. And if Jim loved it, we got to do it again. So, so you were a, a Star Wars fan from the first two before you moved over and, and decided oh, to... that's true. I did go off subject with... <laughs> no, it's perfect. <laughs> okay, so I got upset because he didn't want me to be a puppeteer. Well, he didn't want me to puppeteer on Fraggle Rock. And I left the Muppets at that point. And I was sitting in New York City going, what have you done? All you ever wanted to do is do puppets and you just left the biggest puppet company ever. When my telephone rang and my friend Mike McCormick, who I'd worked on Dark Crystal and Labyrinth with, he um, had been working with Phil Tippett and mm -hmm. while practicing with Cy Snoodles, the nightclub singer in Jedi, he fell off the scaffold and broke his arm. Mm -hmm. So they were looking for someone to replace him on the production and I flew out to California and interviewed and got the job. Hmm. So that's how I started on Jedi. So, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, I mean, you you just alluded to this. You said, you know, it's it, you've throughout your career up to that point, you were very connected to the design of the characters, and then you were, um, you went on to perform them. But I don't think that that's still common practice today for films that use puppets or or you know, um, you know, that don't just do CG; they do practical effects there's usually separate people, right? Separate teams almost that do the design and then there are the performers. Yeah, everybody, when they stopped calling them puppets and started calling them animatronics and they started pigeonholing us in individual slots. And <laughs> Yeah. Does that make it harder as a performer because you're not as like close to the character? You don't know, you know, you know, literally the, the, the sticks and, and twigs and, and fabric that went into making them. Um, it certainly helps. I mean, when I would design something and hand it over to Frank Oz, he could show me stuff I didn't even know I'd built into it. Mm -hmm. So I never minded handing it to him. But when you could hand it over to somebody else and you just sat there going, but it can do this and it can do that. And you're not using half of it. <laughs> yeah. That could be, that would be extremely frustrating part of the process. But because building them is is really horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> it's well, it's a, it's a horrible, endless, tedious series of processes that you go through. the The reward is seeing it all suddenly, this inanimate object spring to life. Sure. And that that's when the reward for all the hard work comes. But I I can assure you, it's seriously hard work up to that point. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. But but you've had the reverse um, experience also. Like you just said you came in, Size Noodles was already designed, and then you were the performer there. So I mean, does that does that well, affect your performance in that way? Because Sai had pulled Mike off the scaffolding, I actually redesigned her and came up with a new thing called a reverse string marionette, where I operated her from underneath instead of a classic marionette where you'd operate from a bridge over the top. Right. Just so I wouldn't have to fall off the scaffold myself. You learned from his mistake. But, 
Um, yeah, I, I, I do have the problem in commercials over here because of that pigeonholing. I have certain companies that always hire me to come in and perform things and they've had somebody else make them and companies that always get me to make them and then they hand them over to somebody else to perform. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely have the problem of when I get handed something to perform, I'm spending half my time going, oh, I wouldn't have built it like this. I would have made yeah. it much better. It would have worked a lot better. <laughs> so I have to <laughs> tell myself to stop being a designer and just get on with <laughs> doing the best I can with the, what I've been given on a particular. <laughs> yeah. You, you see all the nuts and bolts and, you know, yeah, it's probably, it, I'd imagine it's very hard for you to be like, oh, it could have been, I could have given so much more in my performance if it was just able to do X, you know? <laughs> yeah. A lot of times I think they, they overbuild them. They, um, Early animatronics where I described them as instruments that we gave performers to perform. And the new breed of animatronics are much more robots that suit artists have to endure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you came on, um, you did Size Noodles, you were the uh, puppeteer for Salacious Crumb, and very famously, you you are the man in the suit for Admiral Akbar. Mm -hmm. Um he was also a hand puppet as well, I suppose. And he was. Yeah. See, I didn't even know that. In, was, was it was it entirely a hand puppet, or was he also a? Uh, um, oh, um, oh no, we did two versions. Yeah. In those days, it was hard to get all the movement that you wanted in a full bodysuit character because the limitations of space and weakness of servos and things like that. So um, we tended to do a full bodysuit and then. Uh, a close-up version for the close-ups that okay. are much more active facially. And I've told people about it for years, but ILM, only the last four or five years, they released quite a large book, and they had pulled all of the old stuff out of storage, and they actually have both Akbars side by side on the photograph in this book. So I said, there you go. There's the book mm. I told you about all these years. Proof. <laughs> Proof that I, I built two of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, when it comes to like in the development of these characters, um, you, you design them, you control them, you do all the movement. At what point is the decision made for what they're going to sound like and whether you're going to also voice them or if they're going to bring somebody else in to do the final voice? Is it just a matter of who can do the voice better for what the director wants? Okay, you're talking to the guy who's been overvoiced his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the main reasons you, you do get over voice is because when you're doing the performance uh, with Salacious, you're buried under a set with your head cranked sideways. Right. So you're not giving a, a movie quality performance at the time you're actually doing the performance. You can only do a guide track with it. Mm -hmm. um, other times, I, I, I was quite happy. I mean, I, I was 24. Uh, when I was doing Admiral Akbar, but I was playing him as an admiral, a man in his mid to late fifties. You know, mm -hmm. I thought that was probably the age that Akbar was in human e years at that time. So I was quite happy that they got Eric Bowersfeld to do the voice because he was a man in his fifties. Yeah. Can, can you do the voice? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can try to, but. <laughs> <laughs> nearly, nearly as well as Eric did. Yeah, I, I suppose you've heard that uh, we lost Eric on the third of April. Yeah, just very recently. I mean, I was going to ask you. You you brought him up. So so he returned to do the voice for the Force Awakens. Yeah, he um, did. and I, and I know it's it's. I don't think that it's a secret. I know that you know the character does return at least in Episode Eight. Um, do you know what's happening with the voice? Are you allowed to say what's happening with the voice? No, I can't say. I... <laughs> you can't say or you don't know? <laughs> yes, I, I honestly don't know. Uh -huh. I, I can't say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure that I know that there are plenty of voices. If you, It's funny if you actually just go to the Admiral Akbar Wikipedia page. He's been voiced through, you know, animated series and video games. He's been voiced by almost a dozen different people. So it's, 
I'm sure that there are a lot of people lining up to do it. I mean, sadly, yeah, unfortunately, perfect. Eric won't be able to do it. I just didn't know if they had already lined, figured out who that was going to be. The, the fans were talking. They kept mentioning one guy's name who, um, as you say, he's he's done a lot of these um, cartoons and the, the spin-off things that have happened over the years. Yeah. They thought he should do it, but... Yeah, it, it's always listen to the fans, you know. So. Yeah, they, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. <laughs> they do, yeah. Um, has the process of bringing Akbar to life gotten any easier, or has it gotten complicated, more complicated between Jedi and what you did on the Force Awakens? Um, I think it's gotten more complicated. Yes. Really? How so? Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about any specific movie now. I'm just talking in general. Sure. Okay. <laughs> the, um, I, I personally, I'm, I'm waiting for the Messiah. <laughs> and that, that's the person who really understands animatronics and, and what we need to do a good performance and understands computer graphics and knows how to put the two of them together well. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, we get um, the the suit performers are are treated like actors, and we are actors. Some of us are are wonderful actors, but when you're inside the suit, you have to be treated more like a special effect because of lack of vision, needing to know what's going on around you. You know all that to give the best performance. Right. And um, with hyper secrecy and everything sometimes we're not given everything we're needed to do a good performance <laughs> yeah well i mean that that sort of leads me to another question i'm not asking you to reveal anything but because the force awakens was so you know guarded and secretive and abrams kept absolutely everything so close to his chest um were you given in, in the same thing with episode eight were you given an entire script or were you just given the script for the scenes that you were in? No, quite nicely. I um, sat in the cinema and went, oh, my God, they've killed Han Solo. <laughs> <laughs> so they let you in on the secrets. <laughs> no, no, no. I saw it in the cinema. I had no idea. You had no idea. So when they when they brought you in. The page, I was given the page that my lines were on. And that was it. And. They were on quarter scale pages in red with black printing so that you could not reproduce them on a machine. Huh. Wow. And at 59 years old, even with my reading glasses, I had to hand it over and say, could somebody read this to me? Because I can't. <laughs> not only don't I know what I'm doing, I can't read the script. You know, so. are, are you finding a, a, um, a similar level of secrecy on episode eight and Ryan Johnson? I couldn't possibly say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, what's funny is that after The Force Awakens came out, you know, they kind of made an announcement saying, you know, the other movies are not going to be as secretive. You know, like the Rogue One and the other movies that are coming out, we're, we're, we're going to be a little bit more open about the process and it's not going to be such a closed down set on everything. But not much seems to have changed, you know, like the, the information that's coming out to us is still trickling <laughs> I, out. I, I've signed my non-disclosure agreement, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. I'm just I'm, I'm just talking here. I'm not asking you to reveal anything. I was just wondering if, you know, if that but, level of secrecy uh, was still uh, the same. Non-disclosure agreement isn't just until a movie comes out. A non-disclosure agreement is for life. Is for <laughs> life, yeah. Yeah. So I'm nervous about even going to conventions now. Oh, I'll bet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fifteen years time, I'll suddenly find out that I'm losing my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, fans fans just want to know. You know, they want to know everything, and yeah. they don't get a lot of people don't just don't understand the NDAs, you know, the non-disclosures. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who just try to corner you and and just make you reveal something that you really shouldn't. Yeah. So I, I don't blame you. <laughs> the excitement and the anticipation, but I, I'm actually quite happy and proud that um, we managed to keep so much of it a surprise because you just enjoy the movie more when it's <laughs> when it's a surprise when I, you're not 
Totally agree with you. Yeah. Totally agree. It was, it was really amazing to me. The how problem the... with that is is the time frames, you know, because I blame it on the computer graphics. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it takes so damn long to do the computer graphics. You know, it's now two years from start to finish. It used to be only a year you had to wait, you know, at right. most. And maybe even a little less, but now it's like between the time you start talking about it and actually seeing it, yeah, you know, people have half grown up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it does feel like forever ago that uh, they first announced episode seven, and now it's you know sort of in our rearview mirror. But it, it felt felt like such a long road. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even involved in making it. I can't imagine having been involved with it every day for that that length of time. Well, they, I don't think they've released the um, DVD over in England yet. Oh, okay. But we're all really looking forward to it. Because most of the suit artists were hoping that the stuff you didn't get to see in the movie is in the mm -hmm. DVD. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have it, and I've you know I've watched through the special features, and there are a few. Um, there's there's one rather lengthy making of documentary that's that's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting, and there's a very short one, oh, maybe like eight eight or ten minutes about um, about the the practical effects and the characters and the costumes and the puppets. So. Um, that was probably one of my, f that was probably my favorite piece on there just because it really does, you know, again, going back to that thing that I saw when I was a kid about Dark Crystal, um, what seeing, you know, how those things come to life is just mind blowing to me. And I, I just, I, I love it so much. So um, it was really cool to be able to see how you guys brought a lot of those characters to life again for The Force Awakens. And, you know, with the technology being so much better than it is, it, I mean, they're still just puppets and they're still just you know, masks in, in many cases, yep. but they look so much more realistic than they did before. And what I appreciate now is that part of the reason that was so good was because uh, Jim Henson was directing from the trenches, as I described it. He, he was right there, literally in the trench, because, you know, we worked on raised sets all the time. And he was right beside us, so he knew exactly what we needed. And... Um, now it's more frustrating because we don't always get what we need to do a good performance. So, yeah. yeah. Hmm. I think it shows and reflects. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you, I mean, it, 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 the love of the craft though still comes across, you know, and it, whether, whether you're treated like an actor or you're treated like a puppeteer, I think the performance that you've, you've given still comes across because of your love for the craft and the process. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we were doing a scene recently in a film I couldn't possibly mention. <laughs> it was it was a large scene where there were lots of background characters, and these characters, I doubt if they even were on film at the time. Yeah, but we were just having such fun bringing them alive. We wrote a whole subscript, and we were yeah. Before all subscripts just because we're having such fun with them bringing them alive <laughs> <laughs> well it, it, that's in you when you watch force awakens obviously the scene in maz's is maz's castle is very reminiscent of you know jabba's palace or the mm -hmm. cantina it's got all these creatures that you just want to know more about and i mm -hmm. think my biggest complaint about that movie is that when you first enter and the camera kind of walks through the whole the whole bar area until it finally comes to maz is that it moves just so fast. You know, the, you, there's so much going on in that scene and there's so many actors in, in, in character and costume and puppets and there's so much cool stuff there that you just cannot see because the camera just moves too fast. Yeah. Yeah, the, the physical animatronics, uh, the stuff that the guys are building is better than they have ever been before. And the, the number of the background characters that are actually good enough to hold your focus for 30 seconds or two minutes or three minutes or have lines of dialogue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And instead all that happens is it, it goes across. The, the movie that I always talk about was the um, uh, Hellboy 2. Yeah. And it had a similar scene where they, they went through a market. Yeah, I remember. And all the animatronics guys, a lot of my friends here in England, had made characters for that scene. And because we were all feeling the threat from CG, they went well over the top and 
built stuff far past what they were actually being paid to just to make it so wonderful. Mm -hmm, and yeah. the stuff was wonderful, and you never got to see. <laughs> I know. As you said, the camera went across <laughs> and they went, what was that? Did it blink? You know, and <laughs> it was just it's so frustrating. Like I said, we sit here waiting for the Messiah to come. <laughs> yeah. Give us our on screen again. <laughs> you're waiting for the next Jim Henson to come in and just and, and just get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, does it ever weird you out that you're one of your character is one of the most famous internet memes of all time? <laughs> <laughs> um no, I'm I'm happy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> It's been very good for me. I, I, I've been doing um, conventions for a little over 10 years now. Right. And as he became more popular on the internet, I, I noticed the effect directly at the conventions. So it's helping me in my old age. I'll put it that way. <laughs> good for how you. Many, <laughs> how many times do you get asked to, to do the line? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have. <laughs> You can probably see it online someplace. Um, right. I, I was doing a convention in Whitstable, and a family was standing in the line waiting to get my autograph, and they had all made little speech bubbles with It's a Trap in the speech bubble. <laughs> <laughs> so they were all standing there with It's a Trap, and I went, that is absolute genius. <laughs> I'll trade you five photographs for one of those speech bubbles. You know, oh, so wow. So the guy gave me one of his speech bubbles, and I always use it if people want a photo with me. You know, I always use it in the photos because it saves me having to say it quite so often. Right. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I met the guy again recently. I said, you know, that speech bubble you gave me has been around the Royal Trice now. <laughs> but yes, it's um, my, my wife, uh, when she helps me sometimes at the convention, she'd write a little note on the table saying, it's no problem. Yes, we will write it on the photograph. Because you know? <laughs> everybody always has to apologize. Oh, would you mind writing yeah. on there? You know, so. <laughs> um, awesome. I, I read that you said while uh, back on Jedi, working on Jedi, when you were in the Jabba's Palace set and you were doing Salacious Crumb, that um, Richard Marcand liked to come over between takes and just sit and talk to Salacious Crumb, but he wouldn't talk to you. Is that true? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> he preferred talking to Salacious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I had an option between a real person and talking to Salacious Crumb, no offense to whoever that real person is, I probably would choose Salacious Crumb also. <laughs> yeah. Well, Salacious, you know, um, uh, oh, it wasn't the Munsters. It was um, Gomez and Morticia Adams. The Adams family. He had a routine with Morticia where he started her wrist and start kissing up her arm and go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Love you so. And then put a little chalk mark on when the doorbell rang. And Salacious used to do that with Carrie when she was in her metal bikini there in front of Jabba. He'd start down at her ankle and start kissing up her calf. <laughs> and he always found it really funny when Salacious did it. And I always thought if I'd ever tried to do that. <laughs> My life expectancy on the film would have been very, very short indeed. <laughs> but it's quite wonderful um, what puppets can get away with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and because I had a monitor, I could um, make fun. You know, it's like I would tease Richard. Uh, well, you're not really going to turn over on that shot, are you? Because I can see one of the lights in the top of the camera frame. You know, <laughs> like that. So, uh, Salacious used to Although I was very shy, he, he definitely was not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and I've heard I've heard that said uh, even with Sesame Street when when the puppeteers perform with the puppet, people don't even pay attention to the puppeteer. They fully interact with the puppet as if it's real. It's amazing how that how that happens. Yeah, that, that's our big compliment is um, if a director stops talking to you. Yeah. And you is talking to the character, then they're 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 in the room in their full suspension of disbelief, and you know if you're doing that with them in the room, then you definitely got the audience at home. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, I, keeping with you know that um, that scene when you were salacious, 
I also understand that there was a bit of a rivalry between Salacious Crumb and uh, Harrison Ford. <laughs> it's all on the website. You can read it all yourself. We'll link to it because that's exactly what I found is what you wrote. <laughs> so I'll link to that when uh, we put this episode up. But that was hilarious. That story. I'd that never heard be that why before. That's person didn't talk to me a lot on episode seven. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> You heard it here I, first. <laughs> as I always say, when I tell the story, I in no way tell this to disparage Harrison Ford. He is a wonderful human being. Blows my mind away watching him act. Absolutely wonderful. And I, I understand the way he is entirely. You know, he, <laughs> he he's like me. He'd rather be out in his workshop making a piece of wooden furniture than yeah. being surrounded by a thousand people. You know, I... I I understand where he's coming from with that. And um, that that particular day, I mean, that the, the scene we were shooting was him being unfrozen out of the carbon. And um, it was a secret, you know, had he survived, had he not survived. So that was the big pressure back then to, to shoot him, get it right, but also to keep it all a secret. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of stress on set and salacious just, made a, a little joke that was ill-timed and heard by far too many people. So it upset Harrison. So. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great story. And I, I love the, uh, the, the response that, you know, you got from having to get fired, but you're just the new guy now. <laughs> yeah. I'm the, I'm the new guy. <laughs> Cause you were hit, you know, I just think that's great. He, he demanded this unknown person with a you know the voice that just came out of nowhere to be fired so how would he know if you were really fired or not <laughs> well as frank oz said to me one time he said tim i'm the luckiest guy in the world because i'm a multimillionaire and i'm world famous yet i can walk into any restaurant i want to and sit down and have dinner mm-hmm. without being disturbed yeah yeah and that's a nice thing about being puppets is uh you can be known all over the place yet nobody knows you at all. <laughs> That's true. I don't think Jim Henson could have done that though. I think more people would have recognized him. <laughs> yeah, he had a unique sort of look. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I once that remind what you said. It reminds me of something one of my uh, one of my friends who's a comic writer once said. He said, "I don't want to be famous. I want to be a line at the comic convention famous." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's very true. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel. I feel sorry for some of these guys, you know, what we take for granted, just being able to pop into the corner store and pick mm-hmm. up a pint of milk and they can't do it without having 20 people yeah. want to take a selfie with them or something. You know, you end up sort of a recluse in your own right. street, not wanting to come out after a while, I suspect. It's got to be so tough. I don't know why anybody, I mean, when people say I want to be famous or I want to be a movie star, they don't think about that aspect of it. But you, you'd you wonder why anybody would want to do that to themselves. Well, they don't want to do it to themselves. They want to yeah. be a really good actor. And that, yeah. comes, that unfortunately is part of the downside of the territory. Right. Yeah. Um, so as we've said, you were um, the puppeteer behind Size Snoodles. Were you happy with the way that the CG version of that looked in the special edition? Well, she was definitely on the chocolate chip cookies, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> she put on a lot of poundage. Wasn't she? <laughs> um, well, I, as I've said, I, I understand. Yeah. Um, when we did things with Jim, he always went for the magic moment. He, um, would give a take 26 goes to get it right. If that's what it took to get that one time when everything was timed perfectly and you absolutely believe this character was alive. And out in the real world, that just didn't happen. And it was Mike Quinn and I who were operating the size Snoodles puppet. And we got it through a lot of rehearsal down to one in 12 times we could really do a first-class performance with her, and I really liked what she was doing. But because the lines were running in tracks in the floor and the rods were to my feet, all it took was bumping into one of those tracks, and it would make her start to gyrate and go out of control (laughs) and everything. And we did the first take, 
And Mark Quinn said, right, moving on. And I said, no, please, that was, that was horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, the, my, my ending thing. So he gave me take two. And it wasn't a whole lot better than take one. We never got that 12th take that I would have said, <laughs> okay, that's the one, let's move on. And um, so I understand why she was replaced. <laughs> Put yeah. it that way. I still prefer the original, though. <laughs> if you could have seen that 12th take, you would have... You would have I, I would have loved it, right? <laughs> yeah. But they didn't feel the need to replace Max Rebo. He was still there. They didn't CG him. That's true. Yeah. I don't know. So one of the big things with Star Wars fans is... Star Wars fans is we all want to see the original unedited... Like the un-CGI'd versions of the movie released in high definition. Are you hoping for something like that someday? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I assume. <laughs> you think it will happen? Do you think Disney will do it? I, do, I couldn't say. I don't know. I, I, I always think, you know, we, we were doing the best we could at the time with what we had at the time. And, I, and I, I'm not a big fan of going back and reworking things, you know, color yeah. a black and white movie or, you know, redoing Jedi and adding in all these other bits just because we've got CG now. Um, you know, I, I think it should be allowed to, to stand on its merits from the time that it exists in, in history, yeah. <laughs> basically. As it goes further into history as we speak. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we let you go, we would be remiss if we didn't also say that you controlled, you were, you were TikTok and Return to Oz. You were Howard, the one of the guys behind Howard the Duck. Um, so having, having touched all of these incredible characters over the years, do you have a favorite? Like, is there one that you are most proud of? Um, yeah, the movie that I'm most proud of ironically, is uh, Howard the Duck. Hmm. <laughs> Although um, when, it, when it was released over in England, the film reviewer at the time came on television and said, Howard the Duck, Howard the Turkey, more or less. Oh, no. <laughs> for one week in the cinema and disappeared. Yeah. And then for years, people have come up and apologized to me for liking the movie. <laughs> And I said, there's no need to apologize, you know, film critics. Yeah. Film critics are individuals. They're not always right. They're not, you know, they're not God. You know? Yeah. Oh, I know a lot of people who love, who like that movie. Well, I, you see, once again, <laughs> I, I hold my hands up and say, you have to look at it historically. Sure. We hadn't done Ninja Turtles yet. They hadn't done Roger Rabbit yet. And Howard wasn't just... You know, at, at the time Howard was done, most animatronics were just background characters. A cute, cuddly thing that sat on the shelf or whatever was somebody's pet. They, you know, they weren't the leading man of the movie like Howard was. He, right. he was the leading leading man or leading duck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I, I fought so hard to um, be allowed to do the movie. Yeah. And... My thing is to take an inanimate object and get you to suspend your disbelief and believe it's alive. And I wasn't crazy about the final look of the duck. I wanted him to, funny enough, I wanted him to look like the character that they put on the end of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> the director, because these other films I mentioned hadn't come out yet, he didn't think a cartoon character could exist in a world with real people. Mm. So he wouldn't let me make the duck as the cartoon was. He, he insisted the duck be more, I think he, he called a humanoid. Okay. So, you know, it ended up not being Howard and not really <laughs> yeah. a new realm either. You know, that, that was one of the places where the film was held back was I think on the look of it. But Given those limitations, um, it took five of us to bring the duck alive, and I, I contend that every single scene that's edited in the movie, we kept the duck alive and the suspension of disbelief going, and that's that's what I'm so proud of. <laughs> yeah. 
We no, <laughs> yeah, I, that was I, all done in camera in those days. <laughs> you know, you have to appreciate. <laughs> oh yeah, there wasn't Just a whole lot of you know. Every single effect had to be done in camera. There was no exactly computers to paint out the rods or paint over or add blinks or mouth sync or anything. We had to do it live. So. Yeah. Well, bravo. Yeah, I, I, I would not have guessed that that would have been your favorite, but I can see why. I mean, it's. I like the movie. It's. I think I've. I'm. I'm appreciating it more. Just like you were saying, if you take it for a product of its time, um, and you know of the limitations that were in place at that time, um, I think it really is quite an achievement. Um, you know, in terms of of what you were able to do on screen, um, and it's probably time for me to go back and watch it again. Actually, <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it. If you watch it again. When Howard comes to Earth and he falls into the bin or uh -huh. garbage can, he gets out, has a little fight, and then wanders up the alleyway on his own. And as as he's wandering up the alleyway, behind him in the darkness, there is a large 81 um, Harley Davidson, mm -hmm. which George Lucas had bought for me oh. <laughs> to say sorry for something from a previous movie. And... <laughs> I snuck it into the back of the shot to get my Harley in the movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'd forgotten entirely about it until I bought a DVD a year or so ago just to watch Howard again. Yeah. <laughs> and you saw your bike. Oh, there's my Harley. And I don't have it anymore. Oh, no. So, see, now. See the, see the bike that got away. <laughs> the bike that got The one that got away. And now yeah. I'm curious about why George Lucas had to apologize to you with a Harley. That seems kind of major. Uh, and if you can't share the story, that's fine. I'm just curious. We can leave it as curiosity. <laughs> yeah, no, that was... Yeah. Yeah. I let him off light, I'll put it that way. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we let you go, I have one last question. Puppeteering is, I think, it's a notoriously difficult career path to follow. There aren't that many opportunities especially now um and i'm wondering whether you would still recommend it to young people who are just starting out and that's what they want to do <laughs> well, when the when the henson creature shop was still around <laughs> yeah we were working on some project and um uh we all went out to the pictures because uh, lord of the rings was on and when gullum came on screen i turned to the younger guys and i went well, that's it, guys. You have enough to retrain, but I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> and um, I found that I've been overly pessimistic about it all. <laughs> Be because of the fans liking the stuff we used to do so much. Mm -hmm. um, certainly Star Wars has helped a lot, but in the last 10 years, there's been a resurgence of, of animatronics. You know, I'm... I'm doing more work now than I was 10 years ago in the field. And uh, so is it done completely? Is it going to be all CG? I, I really don't understand why, because with the techniques that you can use with CG, we can build much simpler and cheaper animatronics that go sure. back to, as I said, the early ones that were instruments performers could play but then use the computers just to hide how the instruments were played. And there really is, a, there's an area for the two <laughs> to marry together and make something that's better than either one on its own. Yeah. So, yes, no, I, if, if you like doing puppets, then I, I think there is, a, there's still the ability. It never was easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We, we're never greatly respected um, on commercials. I've gone in with things that I've built and gone in to perform them. And, oh, well, we hired actors on this because we wanted a really good performance. And it's like, well, that's fine, but actors don't know how to puppeteer. So <laughs> <laughs> they might be able to perform, but they can't do a puppet, you know. And, but you get that sort of thing, you know. It's, there's, a, there's a discrimination against it, which... I think will always exist to some level or not, but yeah, if you really love it, then go for it. Yeah. Awesome. 
So in addition to um, the film that you couldn't possibly mention or talk about, um, are you working on anything else? Well, I'm in big trouble. Uh-oh. <laughs> a friend of mine, uh, Paul Zerden, he just won uh, this year's America's Got Talent. Okay. He was ventriloquist on that. Oh, wow. And everything, every one of his performances, which you can see on YouTube, uh, all involved animatronics that I have built for him over the years. Huh. He now has a three-year contract in Vegas, and he's very nervous that my stuff's going to wear out. Oh, <laughs> job okay. security for you. <laughs> Six shows a night. So I'm supposed to be rebuilding all of that stuff for him. Well, that's great. Good job, security. Nice. You got a three-year contract. So do you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's and maybe a couple of trips to Vegas in it too. <laughs> well, I could be good. Yeah. But my workshop's over here in England, so it's all getting very tricky with all of that. But, um, what else? Well, this year. <laughs> I, I normally I, I try to keep the conventions down mm -hmm. because as, as much as I enjoy them, I, I would like to think that I haven't done my best creation yet. Yeah, <laughs> right. And to I take away from the work by time. working, not by attending conventions. And exactly. <laughs> but unfortunately, this year, because of Force Awakens, I just went, okay, I give in. Yes, 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 yes. And I've. Yep just sort of said yes to conventions and so it hasn't hasn't left me a, a lot of spare time like yeah. i said I'm, I'm in the process of letting paul down because i'm <laughs> getting into my workshop as much as i should be and, and now you're talking to us and not working so <laughs> funny enough <laughs> Well, we will let you get back to it then. I know you've got a workshop, you've got stuff to create, you've got somebody in Vegas who's who's depending on you, so you can stop talking to a couple of knuckleheads like us. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for taking the time. This has just been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's it for this week on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. What a fun interview, and it's just it's always fascinating to me to talk to people that were there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They created things that, you know, the, he, he had a hand in creating, you know, some of the most nostalgic things in my life. <laughs> yeah. And you get to sit and talk with them about it. I, I mean, it's just, I can't, I don't even have words. It's mind blowing. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Um, so the story that we were talking, referencing um, about Harrison Ford and, mm -hmm. Um, salacious crumb he didn't tell the whole story he has written the whole story um i'll link to it with this uh, he actually it's funny if you go to wikipedia and just look up his entry his entry is a long story like a long right. letter that that he wrote you know most of wikipedia is just like wikipedia it's just a bunch mm -hmm. of facts um but tim rose's page is a letter from tim rose and it's like <laughs> memories that he had working on return of the jedi um, and he tells that story, um, I, I would assume, in its entirety. But it's it's pretty hilarious. So we'll link to that. But if you haven't read it um, and you were intrigued by, you know, the hints that he dropped um, here in this episode, you should go read it. It's pretty awesome. And we're not going to tell you because we want you to go read it. We want you to go read it. I mean, I could tell you, but it's not going to be as funny as <laughs> no, reading no. it from him. So, I mean, he was the one who was there. I'm going to, you know, massacre <laughs> the story if I try to tell it. Oh, man. All right. Well <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine Jamie trying to rehash it and being See, like, then oh, yeah. and, all... then, and then a guy went, came over and Harrison, no, Harrison didn't say that. He... <laughs> it's like me trying to, uh, um, as when you sit down to play a new board game, it's me trying to tell the rules. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm awful at trying to explain new games. So yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, you don't want me telling a story. Like that. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much guys for clicking subscribe. Thank you for coming back week after week. Um, we haven't asked you to do this in a while, so I think this will be my chance to get you to do it. We would love it if you could write a review for us on iTunes. It helps our show reach other people. They rank us based on you know, different factors, and reviews is one of them. If you enjoy what you hear, if you don't enjoy what you hear, let us know. And uh, you can also give us a call. I think Jamie has that phone number. You can give us a call at 301-825-5653 and leave us a message. And if you leave a message, I will put it in to the intro 
just like you hear everyone else do. Oh, and one other thing. When he was doing his inter- intro, and it's not specific to him, um, they owe a lot of the, our guests when we they do our intro they don't get our name right because they don't they don't necessarily know the show name and it's a long show name <laughs> and I was Thanks, thinking Justin yeah it's my fault <laughs> I was thinking that I want to edit together a lot of the flubs I don't know if that would be funny like keep oh, them I all think that would be funny the, and you're listening to the the big bad what what <laughs> yeah and it's funny we don't have that many flubs. No, um, but the flubs we have are pretty good. Yes, they are. Uh, the Ming Na Wen ones come to mind. Those are the best ones. Yeah, yeah. her laugh after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. definitely do that. Yeah, I will. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at Patreon.com/slash Geek Dad.